transformation and joy. If you want a text, it's from John chapter 2, the first verse. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Can you remember the first time you heard that phrase, Outlook Express? It might sound like a train adapted for sightseeing as it speeds along the French Riviera. But of course, what most of us know now is it's nothing of the sort. It's a computer program, and it enables you to send and receive emails. How would we ever live without it? But one of its facilities is an address book where you can include the email addresses of your friends, your family, your colleagues, all those groups and organisations you want to keep in touch with. So when you come to write your new email, the first thing you have to deal with is the email address. And it's so clever and so intuitive that you start typing. So you start with the first letters, J, O, and immediately the rest of the name and the email address flies onto your screen. It recognises faster than you can even type or think that you're going to type the name Joy, a friend of your family. It reads the signs. It recognises instinctively what you are about. Some people turn off at the thought of computers, so I'll try to illustrate it in a different way. On the 3rd of September 1939, Winston was sitting in the study in London. So for most members of the congregation, you'll have immediately said to yourself, oh, well, I know what this is all about. It's the war. It's Churchill. The date, the 3rd of September 1939. The location, an office in London. The name, Winston. And when they're put together in a sentence that's not accidental, they have a meaning. And a meaning that carries more weight than simply the words that are on the paper. They evoke memories, they make connections, maybe fears, maybe aspirations. Even if you subsequently discovered that I was talking about a dog called Winston, the parallels of the stories with the war would still add significance. You would make the connections, you would join the dots and create your own understanding of what I was talking about. And that's just what's happening in the second chapter of John's Gospel. It's a rather charming and colourful story of the wedding at which the catering arrangements went completely awry. But for John's readers, it would be a provocative and evocative story. For practically every sentence of these 11 verses carries words with overtones and un undertones that are unmistakable to those who are in the know. As always with John, he's operating on two different levels at the same time. And here and now, and the what shall be. The exterior and the interior. That which the eyes can see clearly, and that which can only be discerned. So let's be a little more precise and look at the words and ideas that tumble out in a mad profusion and that would trigger the imagination and faith of John's community. The third day, a wedding, the mother of Jesus, wine, an hour that has not yet come, 
water, six stone jars. It's stuffed full of goodies. And so now we're going to unpack them one by one. The version of the Bible that we have in the pews actually says two days later. <clears throat> but two days later from today would be the third day. And actually, in the original translation, that is the phrase that John uses. And there's no doubt that he begins his story in this dramatic way intentionally. He's saying to his readers and hearers that this is a resurrection story. On the third day, he rose again. This is a story about new life. This is the beginning of a new age story. They would hear that phrase, on the third day, and the hairs would stick up on the back of their neck. It's that kind of story that carried for them that kind of experience. Unfortunately, many translations have turned that into the colloquial phrase that we would probably say two days later. We never say, on the third day. The idea to make it more accessible, but in fact it isn't, as I say, a translation of the Greek. There is a world of difference between on the third day and two days later. On the third day there was a wedding. Weddings speak of God's kingdom. It's a kingdom word. It's the subject of so many of the parables of Jesus. And it appears in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. In fact, we read, didn't we, in the family time about the bride being ready to meet the groom. The wedding feast is the culmination of things. Weddings are not only occasions for celebration and rejoicing, but they're a time to establish new relationships, new beginning. You leave your home and your family behind and begin with your new family. And it's not only the combining of two individuals, but the coming together of two families to create a new whole. It speaks of God's kingdom, of the people and the love and the coming together. Thirdly, the mother of Jesus. Interestingly, John never uses her name throughout the gospel. She's always the mother of Jesus. It's as if he is indicating that the early ties which Jesus had are recognised, but have somewhat rather passed on, because now he is a person in his own right. In your own right. I think it was for Ben on his 18th birthday when he suddenly twigged he could delete me from his friends on Facebook and there wasn't a lot I could do about it. But my sister finally felt she'd achieved this status when she was well into her 30s, married with two children, and they were living in a, in a house in the village where we all grew up. She'd become really heavily involved in the village community, organising local events and the playgroup and the village fair and all sorts of things. But my dad was really well known in this community. He'd been a parish councillor, then a city councillor. He was the former no. <laughs> He'd been a church steward, a circuit steward, the founding chairman of the credit union. Everybody knew my dad. 
and with an unco not uncommon surname, we were all identified. Oh no, with an uncommon surname, we were all identified. People would often say, "Oh, you must be John's daughter," particularly for me because I looked like him. But one day, my dad, this particular day when my sister had, had got going and established herself, my dad came home and said to my mum that somebody had actually asked him if he was Jan's dad. And he said, total role reversal. It never happened to him before. He'd never been associated as the appendage to one of us. We had always just been well, his, his family. A role reversal for both of them, almost like the mantle was being passed on. These were the things that he had done and now the new generation was stepping up. And this is perhaps where Jesus has got to here. It's, it's a new beginning, a new generation. And Jesus addresses his mother in this context with literally, what to me and to thee, translated in some versions as mother, they're, they're, not, they're not our concerns. In other words, he dismisses his mother by saying to her, you belong to the old age, I belong to the new. Incidentally, the precise Greek words are the exact same words with which the person possessed by the evil spirit in Mark's gospel distances himself from Jesus, as if to say, look, we belong to different worlds. And then the hour which has not yet come. For John, the hour was the passion, the crucifixion, the resurrection. That time has not yet come, and there was nothing that the mother of Jesus could do or say that would bring that time forward. God the Father determines what shall be. He sets the time frame. Six stone water jars... Water speaks of life, doesn't it? And this summer, we've had a taste of how precious that water can be. In an arid climate, water is the necessity for life and growth, and the lack of water can be devastating and have really long-term consequences. We've had fires on the bone-dry land, the impact on crops, as well as livestock. And then, of course, the flooding that occurs when it finally does rain. Moreover, water was there at the beginning of all things, because until the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters, and that was when life emerged. But the six water jars carry significance too. Six. One less than the perfect number of seven. One sandwich short of a picnic. Within the Jewish purification rites, and without the messianic intervention, the water was available. It was all about cleanliness, the outward signs of cleanliness. But of course, when Jesus comes, water is transformed into something new. It is available. It is life-giving. It gives new life, a fresh start. And at this point, Jesus transforms that water into wine. And the wine, of course, recalls so many things. The salvation feast in Isaiah, on this mountain the Lord will prepare a banquet of wines, well rich, matured and richest fare. The Lord is offering the wine. But of course for many of us, the wine takes us to a much later story, towards the end of the Gospels, 
because the blood red wine speaks of death. It speaks of the crucifixion. But that then speaks of life and joy and fulfilment. The steward at the party sums it all up when he says, usually we serve the best wine when people's palates are fresh and only then we move on to the cheap plonk. But here, the best wine has been saved until the last. The best has come. The best is yet to be. There's quite a lot in, 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 a, in, a text, in that short text. I'm, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at those individual words because almost every word carries a double meaning. We need to recognise the nuances that John's readers would recognise. Some of it may appear strange and unappealing, but there are two things that emerge and that we should notice. Transformation and joy. Firstly, transformation. When I'm in the car, I like to listen to the radio. I live in a household of iPod and Spotify listeners, but when I'm in the car, I like to put on the radio. And I listen to a variety of things, and often programmes include book reviews or investigations or reports on all sorts of different things, theories and ideas. And there was one programme about the proliferation of psychological theories and books about self-help. You can't walk into a bookshop, can you, without finding a whole section on self-help. One of the contributors of this particular programme had just published a book indicating seven ways that I could improve myself. And she said, and I quote, I'm absolutely convinced that people can change in an instant. All you need is to change your attitude. Well, that's easier said than done. <laughs> uh, I think many of us would struggle to change our attitude in an instant. Nevertheless, she was highlighting the possibility of transformation. And it's fascinating to me that a confessedly non-religious person should speak in such a way. You can be transformed, she was saying. Well, amen to that, I say. But first you need to recognise the need for change. Too many of us are content with the water in the jar and we don't bother to taste the wine that is provided. In the next chapter, John tells the story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him that transformation is possible but only if you leave behind the old order and embrace the new. Transformation and joy. In one of his plays, Ibsen makes Julian, the pagan emperor of Rome, say, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all, they brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All they desire is to renounce and suffer that they may come to die. Well, I'd quite like to think that that is the ranting of someone with a chip on their shoulder, and maybe it is. But we do have to acknowledge that sometimes we maybe can appear a little joyless. Every opportunity, every suggestion, every new idea, probably, you know, oh, there's a problem, there's a difficulty, there's a challenge. When you've got cold, have you got a cold or have you got flu? Does every cold... 
Does every conversation over coffee begin with a complaint? Or does it begin with a problem? Or does it begin with a, a joyful celebration? It's tricky, isn't it? John Wesley had his blind spots, as do we all. The school which he founded at Kingswood was no place for the feeble. The boys had no holidays. Once they started school, they stayed there until they left. They got up at 4 a.m. for prayers and an hour's Bible study. They fasted on Fridays until 3 p.m., but it's the teachers I feel sorry for, and I will never complain about my working day again. But Wesley said, he who plays when he is a boy plays when he is a man. So even Wesley, for all his great insights, seemed to feel that joy and happiness and fun were incompatible with faith. But our story that we have read today is saying to us that Jesus is the bringer of joy, unlimited joy, for no party could possibly have consumed all that wine. It is without limit, free and unconfined. On the third day, the intoxication of new life and joy to the world. Amen.